Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Cassell Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Cassell Music Foundation at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Hi, Dave. What's going on? Lara, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I, I couldn't be happier. It is a, a beautiful Sonoma County day here in Sonoma County. Sounds like a nice place to be. Yeah. <laughs> So Dave, you just co-produced this amazing project, Highway Butterfly, which is a tribute to Neil Cassell with over 40 artists covering Neil's solo material. And as of this air date, we're just about two months away from the album hitting the streets. How do you feel about it all? You know, it's it's a rainbow of emotion. It really is. I mean, it was daunting at first when we didn't know if we were going to be able to pull it off. And then it was even more daunting when COVID shut everything down in the middle of recording. Um, and somehow we managed to get it done and we managed to get it mastered. And and then we hit some production snags and manufacturing snags, which is quite common with vinyl in this era. Um, but really, it's a combination of, of love and I, I couldn't be happier. Um, I'm proud of what we've accomplished. I'm, I'm extremely excited for all the artists. Um, they did such an amazing job. And, and as I was talking to Jim Scott, my co-producer about this the other day, it's like, uh, geez, what do we do now? This thing mm-hmm. has sort of monopolized our lives for, uh, you know, over a year and a half. Um, and really, you know, as, as the singles pop out and the videos and the team really moves into action, I just, I, I, I just can't wait to see, it all just come to life. You know, everybody's efforts and love are represented in this box set. And of course, I wish that Neil was around to, to either be embarrassed or proud or happy or make jokes or go into some, you know, British glam rock star imitation voice that he does and says, this music's great, but where are the finger sandwiches? You know, <laughs> so really that's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, really, I, I, I'm elated and I, I can't wait for people to hear it. It's very exciting that we're so close and the singles are coming out and the videos are coming out and it's all just really amazing to watch. So how did the idea for this tribute album come about? Well, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons why tribute records are done. And, and one is someone who wrote a, a great batch of songs passes away. Neil's passing was a surprise. None of us saw it coming and it was shocking and just horrifyingly sad. And, and, uh, but 
Gary Waldman, Neil's longtime friend and manager, was kind of on it. We were talking just a few days afterwards, and, and he's like, you know, Neil had so many great songs and such an amazing career as a solo artist before he joined up with Ryan Adams and he joined up with Chris Robinson and joined up with hardworking Americans and he joined up with Beachwood Sparks and we should do something about that. So there the idea was just kind of laid bare in the midst of all of our sorrow. Uh, Jim Scott was the perfect person to record it and mix it. Jim trained Neil. Neil was one of his favorite people to work with and, and Neil, you know, he really did write some powerful songs in the 90s and on into the 21st century. Uh, and there are a lot of people, it seemed, that wanted to to pay tribute. You know, we had about 18 people involved, other artists that we thought, you know, they knew Neil or we wanted them to do a song of Neil's or they expressed interest. But once word got out, I mean, it was it was just like, well, this is going to be a five record box. We thought it might be a three record set, and and it's turned into a five record set. There are forty one songs on this. Hundreds of artists are involved. So, what did your role as producer entail? And also, how did you come to fill that role? Well, you know, there were a lot of producers for this one. I think it required a team, um, and the best thing about a team is everyone has a superpower. And if the team is properly led, then everybody's superpower is being used to the benefit of the project. And so Gary, Neil's friend and manager, has a great ability to pick great songs. And he really had some artists paired up with some songs from the get-go. So there's that. Uh, Jim and I have worked together. Jim mixed a widespread panic record back in the mid-90s, and I've had him mix some other projects of mine, and we get along great. We see eye to eye. He's got his thing where he gets just the most amazing real sounds in the studio, and bam, it sounds like a record immediately. doesn't have to go through a bunch of post-production. So that end was covered. And then my thing was I'm kind of good at wrangling people, there were people I could call and describe the project in a way that made them want to participate, whether or not they were that close with Neil. Some younger folks that maybe had only heard of Neil or brushed up against him at a festival, uh, Billy Strings being one, you know, there was a lot of mutual respect between Neil and Billy. And in fact, Neil had wanted to do something out here with Billy and Circles Around the Sun and me producing. And we all kind of knew that. So we took it as an omen of good things to come when Billy showed up and was actually the first artist we recorded. He came to Pliers, Jim's studio in Santa Clarita, and recorded all the luck in the world with Circles Around the Sun backing him up. And uh, it just, it worked. And I remember at the end of that day, Gary and Jim and I just all kind of going, you know what, this might just work and it might be musically viable. And so we felt really strong. We felt really strong in our team. And and then Michelle August was around to also help just wrangle things. And she's been so incredibly helpful as a team member um, in, in getting the foundation set up, greasing the wheels, just, you know, sort of like reminding folks of, of how important it is and how important Neil was to us. And, you know, she's changed my mind on a couple of issues that I was like, I, you know, I was ready to fight her but she's, she's a great team member. So we have this amazing team and, and uh, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, absolutely. Big shout out to Michelle. 
So as a producer, did you suggest certain nail tunes for specific artists or did you let everyone kind of parse through his catalog and pick for themselves? Well, you know, that's, that's funny. There are so many answers to that question. Yeah. As a producer, there were certain artists that I fed some songs to, you know, like, uh, MC Taylor, his golden messenger, had been a huge fan of Neil's early solo work in the 90s. He was familiar with those records and he was like, can you send me some other things? And so I sent him a few songs and he was struck with Time Down the Wind, which I thought would be sort of jaunty and that maybe he'd record it in the same vein as as Neil did. But he wrote me back and he said, "I'm, I'm hearing sort of a minor key, almost like dirge ballad with this, what do you think? And I'm like, I think if that's what you're hearing, you need to record it that way. And uh, what he returned with, you know, he took that song and he, he totally refracted it through his lens and, and it's just devastatingly beautiful. one thing uh jay mascus i sent him a couple of tracks and i sent him uh death of a dream which is a very you know it's acoustic and it's mournful and he totally dinosaur juniored it he played every instrument it comes out of the speakers like a i don't even know like some kind of demon Sounds like an outtake from the Dinosaur Junior record, Green Mind. And I was like, whoa, okay. So, you know, it. every artist brought their own sensibility. The one idea that I had that I was happy that happened was Jimmy Herring and I love Jeff Beck. And, and we love what Jeff Beck was able to do with popular songs, um, playing the vocal melody on the guitar. And I just had this idea for Jimmy Herring with Circles Around the Sun doing Neil's song, Bird With No Name, which literally was the song off of Sweet in the Distance that I literally heard it for the first time. And I called him and I was just, it's like four in the morning somewhere, you know, I called him. I'm like, did you actually write this song? Because <laughs> it's literally a melody that makes me cry. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, yeah, of course I wrote it. What are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, I just, I love it. Sorry, I had to tell you. I had to make <sighs> sure. <laughs> 
so I really thought that Jimmy Heron could express that melody in, in a beautiful way. And I know there are probably people out there that are like, I love those words. How dare you? But you can't please people all the time. That one pleases me. You know, uh, Circles played an amazing version. It was actually Circles Plus. So it was just Cats Guys and uh, Tony Leone and John Graboff with uh, added. And then Jimmy recorded his part in Athens, Georgia. And also John Keane, who was engineering Jimmy's recording, threw in some pedal steel, which really took it over the top. And it's just fantastic. I mean, I'm proud of it. It was an idea on paper. Sounded good. Sounds good coming through the speakers, too. Those are all definitely, I mean, they're all highlights. Every version is amazing, but thank you for those. <laughs> well no, you're done. welcome. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I know that there was a lot of people wanted to do the song Sweet in the Distance. And there's always going to be some arm wrestling over maybe California. You know, and, and there were. Shooter wound up with maybe California. Dory Freeman wound up with Sweet in the Distance. But it's funny what, you know, when Phil Lesh and the Terrapin Family Band agreed to participate, they asked for some suggestions, and, and I asked Graham Lesh for some suggestions, and he's like, you know, my dad always really loved doing Freeway to the Canyon when Neil would sit in at Terrapin Crossroads. Is that available? And I'm like, oddly, it is, you know? So they just, they did a great arrangement of Freeway to the Canyon. It's beautiful. Phil's bass line is just kind of freaking genius of course, and the, the harmony stacks and everything is just uh, really, really beautiful. You know, um, Alex Coford, who sang the, the lead harmony on Freeway to the Canyon, turned out to be like a linchpin member of the gang, singing backup on like probably 12 or 15 of the tracks. Just amazing. Just jump in there and do it. We had so many great players who supported these artists. It's, I'm just, I'm kind of blown away because a lot of time, you get this many people in a room and, you know, there's a, a lot of, everybody has a lot of input musically and opinion wise. And there's a million producers in the room. And I mean, heck projects already got two or three. So, uh, you know, but there wasn't any of that. Everybody came into this project just with nothing but love and intent for Neil and respect for his songs. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, they're artists, they can't help but interpret and that's exactly what we were looking for, was interpretation. Right. So with some of those artists who may not have been as familiar with Neil's solo work, what was the response in general when they were sifting through those tunes that you may have sent them? Well, I mean, a, a lot of people were just kind of blown away. You know, I mean, we tried to keep it light. Too many options makes it difficult. So when someone was asking for, you know, send me a few, I'd send them two or three. You know, Tim Heidecker, I just sent 
two songs to. And he came right back within a few hours after having listened to him and said, I can really, I feel like I can do the cold and the darkness justice. But Tim had no idea who Neil was. It was a, it's actually a gift to Neil to have Tim Heidecker on the record because I was just talking to my friend Dwayne Trucks, who is also on this record, amazing version of Super Highway. And uh, in Hardworking Americans, the main television sacrament that we took on a nightly basis was Tim and Eric's awesome show, Great Job. We could not get enough of it. Neil loved it. He was always quoting it. Uh, we found ourselves on one tour without any DVDs. And we literally put the word out on Facebook. And the very next show, like three or four copies of the DVDs showed up for us. So I was talking to, to Dwayne about it. And I said, hey, uh, you know, Tim Heidecker just made a record. And he put it out on Space Bomb, which is the same batch of wingnuts in Richmond, Virginia, that own a studio and a label where his Golden Messenger recorded his track for our record. So Linkage... And Dwayne goes, really? Why don't we get him to do a song? And I was like, that's an amazing idea. So when I called what I thought was his manager, I heard that recognizable Tim Heidecker voice on the phone. I'm like, gee, hey, it's Dave Schools. He's like, hey, I, told, I was told you might be calling. I'm putting an Ikea chair together. And I explained to him what the project was and told him that, you know, Neil was really fond of his work. And he, he, he said something I'll never forget. He said, uh, well, I'm looking forward to a long career of participating in tribute records. So <laughs> I, I knew we had him. <laughs> but I sent him two songs, Cold in the Darkness, and, and he chose Cold in the Darkness. And, and uh, we put a little group together and went down to Santa Clarita and recorded it. He was totally professional, um, sang great. And a lot of people really love that track. And they'll, they'll be like, Tim Heidecker, what? I can see everybody else being on this record. But no, there were some new artists. There's Britton Buchanan, um, who just turns in an amazing performance of Willow Jane. It's like, <laughs> rock and roll, man. 19 years old. I mean, come on. It's just amazing. I was really happy to play bass on that with him. you know. And of course, I got to play with Don Heffington. We had a lot of Don Heffington, God rest his soul, in these sessions. People who had played with Neil in the early 90s. But yeah, I don't, I don't know how familiar Marcus King was with Neil, but he leapt at the opportunity to be a part of the project. You know, one of my selling points in, in the early days before COVID kind of messed everything up was you can come in here and you can pick any song you want and you can pretty much pick any band you want out of the hardworking Americans rhythm section, the Chris Robinson Brotherhood rhythm section, the Bob Glob, Don Heffington rhythm section, or the Circles Around the Sun rhythm section, not to mention a bunch of other people that we could have pulled in to the studio. I mean, it's, it's like a half an, it's, it's, come on, it's the happiest place on earth, Jim Scott's studio. It's just, just, just out there by Magic Mountain, happiest place on earth. Sorry, Disney, you lose. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty sweet selling point, I'm sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Marcus was like, you mean to tell me that I could have you and Dwayne as a rhythm section? And Jesse Acock, I'm like, yeah, you know, but COVID messed that up. But that was the original plan. And, and for the first uh, maybe 15 tracks, it was, you know, one of those three kind of groups. You know, uh, Marcus showed up with Krasno and, and you know, we, we worked up the version and, and it was just amazing. You know, by the end of the night, we we're like, wow, 
you know, that sounded great. We had everybody singing No One Above You. You know, we had two ripping guitar solos, Marcus's voice. Um, you know, it just, it was literally magic every time we opened up the studio doors. You know, Jim would make us dinner. We'd have the Pliers big salad fellowship dinner and maybe cut another vocal or maybe add a cowbell. And that was it. A song a day. It was amazing. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very cool experience to be a part of. Absolutely. So when did you first become familiar with Neil's solo work? And I know you heard Bird With No Name first, but right. how did that come about? Well, really, I, I started hearing about Neil when I started doing some work with Bob Weir at his uh, TRI studio in San Rafael. They had just done this thing called Move Me Brightly, which was like a, I guess they live streamed it, but they made a DVD, sort of a tribute to Jerry Garcia. And uh, I saw that Neil was part of it, Jonathan Wilson, Joey Russo, Mike Gordon, Don Jean Gachow. You know, it was like, wow, it's really cool, you know. And uh, there's his picture. That's Neil Casal. And then Hardworking Americans came together and we chose Neil to be in the band just on the fact that his cachet was so cool. Well, I'd never played with him, never heard any of his music, just didn't have time, you know, and Hardworking Americans was a band that was put together to make a record. So we made a record without ever having played a note together. So the first time I met Neil was when we all showed up for setup to make the first Hardworking Americans record. And he pulled up in his white camper truck, unloaded his amps and his guitars and said, okay, let's get to work. And we got to work. And I mean, we made that record in three, four days. And literally I was so impressed with Neil because that album was about interpretation of other people's music. It was Todd Snyder's idea to sort of curate songs that he really enjoyed by people he respected um, and peers. And so the very first song we recorded was Kevin Kinney of Driving and Crying, the famous song Straight to Hell. And we pitched it down and we made it a gospel ballad instead of a country two-step. And, and Neil was game for all of that. You know, we were all game for, for just like deconstructing these songs and then rebuilding them. And when I really began to sort of just look at Neil, like what the, he'd have these ideas and they were just fantastic. And it wasn't just that like they, they were cool ideas. It was that they worked in, in the context of what we were trying to do. Every single one of them worked. He was so giving in his ideas uh, and his support for the other folks. You know, there was a point when a band member was just having a really hard time coming up with a part to transition out of a verse into a chorus. And, uh, you know, Neil was right there with just amazing encouragement. And he didn't do it in an instructive way. He did it by asking a question, mm -hmm. you know, which, which I was like, okay. And then of course, everybody else split. And Neil and I had a day or two there just with the engineer doing overdub vocals and he was working on guitars. And that's when we realized that we were going to need another person before we could even play live. And so Jesse Acock came into the band after we recorded the record because Neil had done so much brilliant work. It took two people to cover all the parts. And so he was leaving and we'd been talking about Colonel Bruce Hampton 
asterisk, look him up. We're not going to go into it here. That's for a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother podcast series devoted to Colonel Bruce. But he was intrigued, so I gave him the Hampton Grease Band CD, Music to Eat, which is a double CD. is pretty much the worst-selling record in the CBS catalog. And uh, like, well, if, if this guy doesn't hate me yet, he's going to after he hears this. And he reached into his truck, and he's like, well, here, have a copy of my latest record, Sweet in the Distance. A couple of hours later, the phone rings, and I see that it's Neil, and I'm like, all right, he's, he hates me now. And he says, I had to pull off the road. This this Hampton Grease Band is like, it's incredible. I don't even believe it. What I've never heard such. And I'm like, well, I guess I better go listen to your record. And so I put it on and I was blown away. I was like, why, why have I not heard this? It's, yeah. You know, pretty much. I see this record's a couple of years old. Why have I not heard this? Where are my mentors? Who are the people that tell me what to listen to? How are they not giving me this because I mean, I was blown away and I'm still blown away and putting this project together and getting an opportunity to delve into the deeper catalog um, and talking to artists about what some of these songs that they chose to record meant to them. It really was an education I needed. You know, it's like, how can I work so closely with someone and not really go down their rabbit hole? Well, the answer is we were working so hard. Right. You know, and believe me, the the last thing we were ever going to play for each other is our own music. You know, we yeah. were we were discovering secrets about each other vicariously through DJing on the tour bus. You know, the the famous story that I always tell about Neil is uh, we were having one of those nights where we were passing the phone around and putting together the ultimate playlist of Southern rock. So we went through all the obvious stuff, and we thought we'd pretty much finished and i i said oh, hold on a second you can't have a southern rock playlist without train train by blackfoot and neil just sits back he goes i was in that band and we're just like what and we literally had to do the math you know i'm like wait a minute there's that's you're not like that you're not 60 years old how could you have been in that? he's like i was the hot shot young guitar player that they brought in i learned everything i know about being on the road from ricky medlock and it was just like, are you kidding? And the next thing you know, Snyder has gone into the deep, dark web and found some footage from like 1991 or something of Neil shirtless playing with Train Train with Blackfoot in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so it's like, who are you, man? <laughs> yeah, those are some pretty amazing photographs. Um, I know there's a an insert from the album Medicine Man where you can his guns are out blazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he knew what he had. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. Well, it's no wonder, you know, you hadn't heard his entire catalog because obviously there was 
there's so much his solo records alone I mean 14 albums by himself and then like countless projects and collaborations that are still kind of being unearthed so it's no wonder there's a, a lot to dig into absolutely do you feel like uh maybe when you when you talk about like MC Taylor's version that really brings out the sadness and time down the wind do you feel like this project maybe illuminated something that listeners may have originally missed in Neil's versions? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I totally, yeah. And it's, it's, it's diff, it can be difficult to talk about because when somebody takes their own life, there's so much shock and sadness uh, to get over. You know, when someone has like a, a long coast into a landing exit from this earth, a lot gets uh, resolved. Um, a lot of people are prepared for such a thing. Uh, maybe they were fighting an illness for a really long time. They had time to prepare. Um, when someone takes their own life, we don't get that time. You know, we're all sort of left just uh, with what we got. And everybody in talking about it and trying to process Neil's death seemed to have one piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Um, maybe like you know, I know that I flipped through a text thread and, and found some stuff that had I known how disillusioned and depressed he was, maybe I could have, you know, we all go through this. Maybe I could have, we had our pieces of the puzzle. We began to put them together and something was illuminated in discussing this that maybe only very few people even got a glimpse of, which was, he was a melancholy cat. Um, and he was prone to bouts of, of depression and wrestling with himself um, and questioning the choices he's made. Uh, you know, we all get that way, but depression is a motherfucker. I'm going to say it. That's the only way to put it. It's painful physically. It's painful mentally. It feels like something you can't share. But I think in putting the record together, having the context of knowing that our friend someone we loved had taken their own life. Um, yes, there was a lot illuminated about Neil through the words of his songs and, and sometimes just the melancholy nature and vibe of the songs. But there were more than a few times um, in the studio where Jim and I and, and Gary would be in the control room and the artist would be with the band tracking the song and a song would come through and... Jim and I would just sort of make eye contact. Gary and I would be like, and it was just like, we couldn't look at each other. You know, there's right. Lauren Barth singing Lost Satellite. You know, there's some lines in that song that just, it's on the nose, you know, and it's like, holy cow. Wow. But the great thing about the interpretation is that, yeah, we, we learned something about the artist and his pain and maybe the the solitary space, the outsider feeling um, where he was when he wrote the song. But a lot of times the interpretation can really be uplifting. It's almost like a processing and sort of a an exercising of someone else's feelings. I know that Jim had mentioned the fact that Leslie Mendelssohn had uh, changed the key of the song she did. And it put it in this totally different vibe, more of a gospel and more of an uplifting version of Feel No Pain. I mean, 
and and that's what these people bring that's the beauty of an artist transform not just interpret but transform time down the wind i mean it's like i said it's a it's a elbow out the window of your car cruising down a country lane kind of vibe in neil's version and mc taylor just upended it and it is just like i'm all alone in this world and and you know i came in alone and i'm going out alone and everything is up for grabs when you interpret an artist's work and it's just been such an outlook into uh what neil felt you know i mean i didn't really get that much quality secret sharing time with him you know what we had was pretty much limited to the back lounge of a tour bus everybody else is asleep and we'd chase a conversational rabbit down to some deep dark places that we shared and we really we opened up to each other a lot um but i never saw this coming mm -hmm. uh, listening to the music i should have seen it coming but what good is that, you know? Right. Really the best thing we can hope to accomplish with what is kind of like a, a five LP headstone um, dedicated to our friend and an amazing artist and singer songwriter was just, uh, hey, here's, here's something that might help you, you know, the listener. Here's, here's a rabbit hole to go down. Here's, here's, three hours and some odd minutes of an artist's music interpreted by people you may know, you may not know, you may love, you may hate, give it a shot. And more than that, it's sort of the key that unlocks the door to the Neil Casal Music Foundation, which, you know, we're striving to, what's the way to put this, get some mental health into people's heads who need it. People who live out on the road, who feel isolated, I, you know, when Neil talks about being a lost satellite, I get it. You know, a lot of times I feel like I'm on this outer orbit around everyone else, my friends, the people I love, my family. Um, and, and on the road, that can be a devastating way to feel. So, you know, we've got the foundation to try to provide some relief. Should someone begin to feel that way? We can hopefully provide some relief. You know, we can support Nucci Space in Athens, Georgia. We can support backline care. We can support music cares. And also we can get some musical instruments into kids' hands. Right now we're getting those into kids' hands in areas of New York and New Jersey where Neil lived, where he grew up. And, you know, this is something Widespread Panic's been doing for a long time with, with our Tunes for Tots thing. There is nothing more fulfilling than seeing a kid play a musical instrument. There's just, when before they had nothing to play or the school had no program or they, you know, the teacher was at wit's end because the gear was all falling apart. Um, to me, that's incredibly fulfilling. And I think that that's, that's those other two points go way beyond just enjoying 41 songs of, of Neil's work done by amazing artists. I mean, if I was to list them all here, the podcast would be over. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, it is absolutely a wonderful cause and actively making a difference already. So I'm curious, outside of 
you know, obviously this most important issue of trying to advocate for mental health and prevent this from ever happening again. What is your hope for the album and also this podcast series? Well, I mean, obviously they're, they're the greater issues that you mentioned. My hope for the album is that people discover Neil Casal's music. And along the way, I think there are a lot of up and coming artists on this record that they could discover. You know, Leslie Mendelssohn has toured with Jackson Brown. Jackson's Brown backing band is, is backing some of the songs on this record. Uh, I think for people who want to be exposed to new artists through music, there is a lot of linkage to be made. If they look at the liner notes and look at who played on whose song, uh, there's a lot to discover there. So I would hope that people will discover some of the artists that they may never have had a chance to hear. With the podcast, I think the opportunity exists to learn more and be intrigued by what makes these artists tick. You know, for one, I can't wait to hear what may have motivated Warren Haynes to pick the song he picked. You know, I, I would love to hear Derek and Susan talk about why they chose the song they chose. I think that's interesting, you know, and I think that other people will be interested too. I mean, really it's about informing folks about Neil's music and, and the, the benefit is you're going to discover Leslie Mendelssohn. You're going to discover his golden messenger. You're going to discover Kenny Roby and be like, Oh, I love Amy Helm. She's singing with Kenny Roby. What does she know that I don't know? Well, it's time to find out. Is it too much to ask of you? Am I moving too fast? Did I come back too soon? Is it too much to ask of you? You know, there's there is a lot of talent and a lot of love on this thing and, and it's there to be discovered. Absolutely. Well Dave, thank you so much for putting all your love and your hard work on this beautiful endeavor and keeping Neil's music alive. Man, it's it's meant the world to me. I mean, like I said, this this project uh it's it's been hard and it's been wonderful. I never could have imagined that it would be as amazing and powerful as it is and, and have so many amazing folks. I mean you know, if I left anyone out, I apologize, but take a look at the, at the record and give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's like 130 odd musicians on there. It's it's a lot. (laughs) You know, and the funny thing is a lot of the folks that Neil played with that aren't necessarily like primary artists are woven through this thing. Like Adam McDougal and Dan Horn and Farmer Dave and Brent Rademacher. And, you know, it's like, Cass McCombs is in there, Joey Russo, you know, people that Neil loved and that loved him are sort of the the blood coursing through this record. The beat and the rhythm and the stuff that the glue that that's to me why it's like read the liner notes, you know, look at who's playing on what and you might just be really surprised. Um, and, and to me, that speaks very, very powerfully and 
strongly of the love that these people had for Neil Cassell. All right, Dave. Thanks so much for sharing. Thank you, Lara. Thanks for letting me babble. (laughs) Anytime. Take care. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly, the songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Cassell Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.